Today's message comes from John 12, 12, verses 12 through verses 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took with so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he, was, he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look at the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for gathering us here this morning, and we thank you especially on this day when we um, are given the privilege, we get to celebrate uh, the day uh, 2,000 years ago when uh, your son, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, beginning the First of the, the first day of the last week of his life, uh, his ministry on earth. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we walk through this passage this morning and as we uh, go through Holy Week and contemplate uh, the life and death and uh, resurrection of Christ, Lord, we pray that uh, throughout the week you would direct our attention toward Christ. That as we look around and we we see the, the, the spring flowers blooming and the, uh, the Easter and uh, resurrection uh, decor that we would be reminded of Christ who is the first fruits of all those who place faith in him. And we pray this morning that you would teach us more about you, that by your Holy Spirit you would minister your word to us and that you would make us more like your son we pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. So today, as I said in the prayer, uh, begins uh, Passion Week, um, sometimes referred to as Holy Week as well. Traditionally, churches have used both of those phrases, Holy Week, Passion Week. Uh, Holy Week is more obvious to people as to why we would call it that. Passion Week comes from the Latin word passiones. I don't know Latin. I looked that up. But it comes from the Latin passiones, which means sufferings. And so when we talk about Passion Week or when we talk about the passion of Christ, hence Mel Gibson's movie uh, made about 20 years ago now at this point, uh, titled The Passion of Christ, talking about the sufferings of Christ. And uh, it refers to the last uh, week of Jesus's ministry, not necessarily the last week of his life on earth. Obviously, after the resurrection, he spends 40 days with the disciples before his ascension. But, uh, but uh, Palm Sunday marks the first day of the last, celebrating the last week of Jesus's uh, ministry, which was an incredibly important week. It was packed with a lot of teaching and miracles and uh, extremely important events in the life of Christ, so much so that all four Gospels dedicate an enormous amount of space to just the last, uh, really, it's not even a full week. It's the last five days Jesus is crucified on Friday. And so counting from today, it's really just the last five days of his life that all four Gospels uh, give an enormous amount of attention to. Uh, For example, Matthew dedicates roughly 28% of his Gospel to the last five days of Jesus' life, 28% of of, uh, his Gospel. Mark dedicates about 38% of his Gospel to just the last five days of Jesus' ministry Um, on earth um, before his crucifixion. Luke dedicates about 25%. John dedicates the most, uh, 45%. Nearly half of the gospel of John is dedicated to just the last five days of Jesus's uh, ministry. And so really, where we're looking at today, John chapter 12, verse 12, from this verse, John chapter 12, verse 12, all the way to the end of chapter 19 in the Gospel of John is all just the last five days of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion. During these five days, there is an enormous amount, as I said, of teaching and important events that take place. For example, just as a snapshot, during these last five days, Jesus cleanses the temple. He curses the fig tree and causes it to wither. Many of you remember that story. Uh, Jesus gives the two great commandments in Matthew chapter 22 during his last five days. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments are given in the last five days before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. During the last five days, he pronounces the seven woes upon the uh, scribes and the Pharisees. He also provides very important teachings regarding the end times, Matthew chapter 24, 25, that all happens during the last five days of Jesus' ministry uh, on earth. He provides really important teachings regarding himself being the vine and his believers being the branches in John chapter 16. Of course, John chapter 17, his famous high priestly prayer 
in the Garden of Gethsemane is also the washing of the disciples' feet, the instituting of the Lord's Supper, and of course his uh, crucifixion um, all happens in this last five days. This week is when all of this uh, happens. And so we try to make a, uh, a special event um, out of it um, rather than just uh, going along in 1 Corinthians and then having Resurrection Sunday and then going back to 1 Corinthians. We want to take a week or at least, uh, you know, maybe not every day this week, um, although Sunday might be nice to sort of have a Sunday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night and follow all of the teachings of Christ throughout the week. Wouldn't that be? I think it would be great. Maybe I'd be the only one here. But we're at least going to come back together, and at least I, I hope many of you will. If you haven't um, reserved your seat, I hope you will, because we just do one service, and uh, we have two morning services. We, we can't all fit in one. There is still space available, I can tell you that. There is still space available, so I hope you'll reserve your seating and make it a point to be here on our uh, Monday, Thursday night, where we will... Uh, take the Lord's Supper very close to the very night 2,000 years ago that Christ took the Lord's Supper. And then on Friday night, we will celebrate the crucifixion of Christ very close to the actual day that Christ was crucified uh, 2,000 years ago. And we know that because unlike Christmas, Passover is always the same. Uh, The same time frame, it moves around because it follows the lunar calendar. Uh, But this year, you may not know this, Passover is actually this coming Wednesday at sunset. This coming Wednesday at sunset is Passover. The following night, Thursday, is when we're going to be doing our Monday, Thursday service. So we're one day off. We're one day off this year. Maybe we should have moved it to Wednesday, but uh, Monday, Thursday. It was on a Thursday night, which is why we do that. It was on a Thursday night. We know that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, and then it was on a Friday that he was crucified. And so... Um, I am looking forward to that. I hope you all are as well. And so today we are looking at Palm Sunday. This is the day in which Christ rode into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. And so we see in our text, it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the next day helps us to understand how we know this was on Um, a Sunday, uh, because we see back in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says six days before the Passover. So that would have been a Saturday. We know on this year, the Passover took place on a Friday because we know that the very next day was a Sabbath. And that's why they had to get his body off the cross. The Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday. We got to get him down. So we know he was crucified on a Friday Thus, we know that verse 1 is a Saturday because it's six days before the Passover, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, he is crucified. So when verse 12 says the next day, we know that this is Sunday, right? This is Sunday when this event uh, takes place. And so that helps us to identify the day of the week. And so then we're told that a large crowd had come to the feast. And this would have been an enormous crowd that would have gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover because according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, the Passover 
had to be celebrated by command of God. It had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. The Passover meal, the Passover lamb had to be eaten, had to be sacrificed and eaten in Jerusalem. Of course, all of that is designed to point forward to the ultimate lamb of God, the ultimate Passover lamb of God who is crucified in Jerusalem or right outside the wall of Jerusalem. But it had to be eaten there. You couldn't do it in your homes. This wasn't a Thanksgiving feast where you invite the family over to your home and have Passover. Today, they have it in their homes because they don't have a temple anymore. Jews are scattered everywhere. They celebrate the Passover wherever they are. But in Jesus' day, according to Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 16 had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. Thus, the city was extremely crowded. For example, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, records that the Passover that took place around 66 AD, he writes in his uh, history that there were approximately 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for that Passover. 2.7 million. Now, keep in mind that modern-day Jerusalem today has a population of just under 1 million. Just under 1 million today. It's like 990,000 people is the official population of Jerusalem today. 66 AD, 2.7 million crammed into this tiny city for the Passover meal, right? So this is like an introvert's nightmare. Um, <laughs> So they're all in Jerusalem. This massive crowd hears that Jesus is approaching. And so we read in verse 13, and so they took palm branches. They took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they are waving these palm branches, and the fact that they are waving palm branches is not simply a coincidence. It's not a matter of convenience because, you know, there was nothing else to wave. You know, they, well, grab some pram branch, uh, palm branches. It wasn't just a matter of convenience, um, nor was it just a uh, coincidence. Because, first of all, well, there was an abundance of date palms in and around Jerusalem. There still are today. Dates is a very popular fruit that is eaten in uh, the, uh, the Near East, in, uh, throughout uh, Palestine. And so there are an abundance of uh, date palms and. They would have been readily available, but because of that, we also know that beginning in the second century BC, palm branches had become a national symbol for Israel. Palm branches had become a national symbol. You would find it embroidered on uh, banners and uh, material and engraven into furniture or pots or whatever the case may be. This seems to have begun with the Simon the Maccabean, we know from history when he drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem in 141 BC, we are told that he was celebrated, his victory was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches, music and the waving of palm branches. We also know that during the Jewish revolt against the Romans, which failed in AD 66 to AD 70, during that short time, you know, they thought they were going to win. During that short time, the insurgents minted coins that had the symbol of palm branches on the coins. Um, Of course, they ended up losing that battle. 
But the point, this is what you need to get, the waving of the palm branches and what they are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a nationalistic event. This is the king. We're waving the palm branches just like we did with Simon the Maccabean. They're waving their national symbol as Christ rides into Jerusalem. And they are citing Psalm 118. The fact that they are citing Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 is significant because Psalm 118 was viewed as a messianic psalm. They understood that Psalm 118 was about the coming of the Messiah, that one day he would come, he would conquer the enemies of Israel, he would rule over Israel, and he would ascend to his throne. If you look at Psalm 118 with me, verse 25 and 26. Verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. The Hebrew word, Hosiana, which is what they are saying in John, Hosanna, the Hebrew word Hosiana literally means save us, we pray, or save us now. So that's actually what they're saying in verse 25. You could read verse 25 as Hosanna, O Yahweh. Save us now. O Yahweh, save us, we pray, O Yahweh. That's the Hebrew word that you would see in the text in verse 25, Hosiana. So Psalm 118, verse 26, goes on to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Well, who is he who is going to come in the name of the Lord? Who is he that is going to deliver Israel, as they say in verse 26? Messiah, the Messiah would someday come. And so they are praying in Psalm 118, they are praying in John chapter 12, blessed is he who is sent by God, save us we pray, O God. And they believe that Jesus is that one. Jesus is the Messiah who has been sent, the King of Israel. But you'll notice in chapter 12, verse 13, that they add a little phrase at the end that we don't see in Psalm 118, even the king of Israel. Even the king of Israel. We do not see that there in Psalm 118. Rather, that is their understanding of Psalm 118. In other words, that even the king of Israel is how they understand Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. It's a reference to the king of of Israel, it's a reference to the son of David, the legitimate heir to the throne of David would be the Messiah. And so while the crowd may not understand that Jesus is God, I don't think they understand that at this point, nor do they understand what he's about to do in five days. They don't realize what is about to happen in five days the crowd firmly understands and believes, at least at this moment, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David. He is the deliverer of Israel, which makes it all the more um, astounding 
that in five short days, many of the people in this crowd will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Probably because in their limited human perspective, when they see Jesus beaten and bloodied with the crown of thorns on his head, clearly he is not the Messiah. Clearly he is not the one who would deliver Israel. But yes, he was, just not in the way that they thought he would deliver Israel. But they believed at this moment that Jesus had come to deliver them from their enemies, namely the Roman Empire that was an occupying force in Israel. This was the one who would make Israel an independent nation once again. They had not been an independent nation for the better part of 500 years since the fall of Judah in 586 B.C. Think of that. It had been 500 years since they had been their own independent nation, and they thought, this is it. So imagine their disappointment when they see Jesus standing next to Pontius Pilate, bloodied and beaten. Of course, what they didn't realize is that Jesus came to deliver them from their enemies, their greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And so John goes on in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, and he describes, he then says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So John describes what happens. It's interesting that he leaves out many of the details that we read in the synoptic gospels, if you remember the story of the triumphal entry that Jesus sends the disciples into the town in front of him, and that he says, you're going to find a donkey tied to a, to, a, to a post, untie it, bring it to me. If the owner asks you any questions, just tell them the master has need of it, and they will let you go, and that's exactly what happens, and everybody debates what happened there. I mean, was that some miracle that took place, you know, some Jedi mind trick that Jesus is doing on the owner, or was it pre-planned? Was this a pre-planned arrangement somehow with the owner? The owner actually knew who Jesus was. He's letting them have the donkey. Okay, you're the ones who came for the donkey. I understand. I get it. Nobody really knows. Doesn't really matter, which is why John leaves it out. It's not important to his main point that he is trying to make here. So he leaves out those details and simply says that Jesus found a young donkey. He doesn't tell us how he found the donkey, but we know from the Synoptic Gospels how Jesus finds the donkey. But John cites Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is what comes to mind when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 is what talks about that event. Let me just read that to you, or you can read it with me. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the second half says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So John remembers this and says, This is to fulfill this passage. Your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation. 
having salvation. John would have especially understood this when he wrote the gospel of John. Remember, John doesn't write this right as it's happening. John writes the gospel of John somewhere in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s A.D., Jesus is crucified around 30 A.D., so John has had a lot of time to reflect upon the life of Christ. It's one of the reasons that the Gospel of John has the highest Christology of all of the Gospels. He's had many years to reflect upon the life and teaching and ministry of Christ. So when he's writing this Gospel, he realizes, oh my gosh, I didn't notice this at the time. When he's writing it in Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9, your king is coming to you and he is bringing salvation. Hence the title of my message, Salvation Came to the World. However, John seems to be blending two passages, and this is quite common in the New Testament. He seems to be blending Isaiah 40, verse 9. Because notice... In John chapter 12, he says, fear not, daughter of Zion. That fear not is not in Zechariah. Fear not, O daughter of Zion, is not there. O daughter of Zion is there, but the fear not is not there. Likely what John has in mind is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, says this, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. So John seems to have in mind these two. Isaiah 40 verse 9, Zechariah 9 verse 9. But what is interesting about that then is that John understands. John understands that this is God himself coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. Remember, a central theme throughout the Gospel of John is that Jesus is God. That's what I mean when I say John has the highest Christology. From the very beginning, John makes that argument. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things were created, and without him, nothing was created that has been made. From the very beginning of the gospel, John makes the point, Jesus is not just the Messiah, not just the Son of David, not just the Son of God. Jesus is the very God of Genesis chapter 1. And this God of creation is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's amazing when you stop and think about it. Because God could have come riding into Jerusalem on anything, right? He's God. He could have made a statement. He could have come riding into Jerusalem on a a stallion, or in the Middle East on an elephant, right? A mighty elephant. I mean, he's God. He could have come riding into Jerusalem on a Tyrannosaurus Rex, for all we know. He's the creator of the universe. Spoke everything into existence by the power of his word. Yet he chooses to come into Jerusalem 
on a donkey. The paradox of God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is the greatest example of humility for all of us. He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. I think also because the donkey had symbolism in the ancient Near East and uh, first century Israel. Number one, in Israel, in the Old Testament, uh, throughout the history of Israel, the coronation of a king, it was very common for them to use a donkey or a mule in order for the coronation ceremony. Um, not, not a stallion like you see in uh, medieval Europe when they... When they, you know, had a coronation ceremony, you find that the strongest, you know, most beautiful stallion that the king would ride into because it was a symbol of power and authority. But in Israel, they would use a mule or a donkey because it was a, it was a symbol of peace. It was the idea that the king would bring peace to the nation. So it was the symbolism of the cessation of war. So, number one, the donkeys would symbolize the coronation of a king. But secondly, riding in on a donkey would symbolize the coming of peace. Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes riding into Jerusalem. We see that, for example, when King David appoints Solomon to be his successor, he orders that his mule, not not his war horse, he orders that David's mule be taken and Solomon be placed on it and that he be paraded through town and everybody hail as the new king of Israel. But what we see and what John wants us to understand is that peace came not just to Jerusalem, but to the world, as seen in Zechariah chapter 9 again. I think this is another reason Zechariah comes to him, because Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, if you continue to read into verse 10, listen to this, Zechariah 9.10 goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations, right? Peace has come. The prince of peace comes riding into Jerusalem. Now listen to this. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. John understands that peace and salvation has not just come to Jerusalem, it is to the ends of the earth. It's for the world. Salvation has come to the world. Jesus, of course, would do this. He would bring peace between God and humanity. He would bring a, um, a, 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 a ceasing of, of war between God and humanity for those who put faith in Christ. Christ is the great mediator who brings an end of hostility between God and man for those who put faith in Christ through his life of obedience and his death on the cross. But then John tells us in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So they're, they're still a little puzzled at this point. 
And that's because they're still kind of puzzled about Jesus, honestly, right? We'll see that when we talk about the, the crucifixion of Christ. The disciples are just like, what? How did it come to this? And then they're all kind of soaking in, in their home. And then even after the resurrection, many of them are puzzled. Like, where did he go? Why did they steal his body? Even until Acts chapter 1, right before his ascension, one of them asked, um, okay, so you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? At this point, I mean, are you going to overthrow the Romans now? They're still trying to figure out, Jesus, what, what is going on? John figures it out by the time he writes this book. But he's honest that they're a little puzzled by the crowds, the Hosanna, all that is happening. Like, wow, he's, we, we knew he was a big deal. We didn't realize he was a superstar, though. But goodness, the crowds are just enthronged and uh, gathering around him. John explains in verses 17 and 18 that there are really two groups that are gathering here for two different reasons. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So the crowd that saw him raise Lazarus from they followed him into Jerusalem. They're, we saw what he did. We're following him in. They probably got the chant going. And then verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So there were those who were with him when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then there were those who heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So they gather with the other crowd, and there's this huge mob that is following behind. Some are going ahead. They're laying down their coats. They're laying down palm branches. The idea is that it's a makeshift carpet for the king. He's not going to walk on bare ground. He's going to walk across these palm branches. He's going to walk across these cloaks that have been laid down. But now verse 19 is significant and really the crux of this passage. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We are losing this battle. The whole world is going after Christ, of course, when they say the whole world is going after him, they, they mean in their mind the, the Israelite world, right? They understand that it, it's, it's not people from China and South Africa. Right? In their mind, it's, it's the known world. It's the known world is all following after Christ. However, in verses 20 and 21, we see that the Pharisees, were actually unwittingly prophesying more than they realize. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Remember, these subtitles aren't here in, your, in, in the original. In your Bible, there's this division between verses 19 and 20. In the original text, there's no division. Verse 19 just flows into verse 20. John is making a point. Now among those who went up to, right? So right at the end, the world is going after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, the world. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. These Greeks would have been God-fearers, much like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, or the centurion who built a synagogue for the Jews in Luke chapter 7. In other words, these were not proselytes. They hadn't converted to Judaism. 
But they were very interested in Judaism. They were fascinated by the religion. They thought there was much that they could maybe benefit from Judaism. So these are what the Jews would often call God-fearers. There were people who respected Judaism, were interested in it, but themselves were not Jews. And so we see that Philip tells Andrew. Andrew tells Jesus, but it's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually respond to the request. Rather, he uses it as an opportunity to make a statement. We see that in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man. The time has come. Hour doesn't mean 60 minutes. That's their way of saying the time has come. The time has come for the Son of God to be glorified. Jesus is obviously talking about his death. Not that the cross was a glorious way to die. That's not what he means. But rather that the cross of Christ is what brought God the Father and God the Son the most glory. The cross of Christ is the pinnacle. It is the apex of redemptive redemptive history. Everything in the Old Testament is building up to the cross of Christ. It's all looking forward to the cross of Christ. Everything in the New Testament, everything after that, looks back toward the cross of Christ for salvation. God was most glorified in the moment that Christ the Son hung on the cross for sinners. Because in the crucifixion of Christ is displayed, it is the greatest display of God's wrath and God's justice, but at the same time, it is the greatest display of God's love and mercy. There is nothing that glorifies God more than the cross of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 24 then, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When a seed is buried, it literally dies in the sense that it's destroyed, right? It destroyed. It is destroyed. It breaks apart. It comes apart. I mean, if you have a seed and you want to preserve it, you want to keep it just like that, you set it up on your shelf. You don't bury it, and it, it will never change. But you stick that seed into the ground, and it's going to die in the sense that it's destroyed. But that is how you get more of that seed, You get an apple seed, you want more apple seeds, bury it. An apple tree comes up, apples get produced, and inside of all of those apples are more apple seeds. You get more of the same if the seed dies. Jesus had to be destroyed, crucified, in order to produce more of himself. To produce more of himself. Because of Christ's death on the cross, Those who place faith in Christ are cleansed of their sins by the blood of Christ. We are cleansed of our sins by the blood of Christ, and we are made righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ. So just like Christ, believers are able to stand before God completely sinless and completely righteous, but not because of anything we've done but because of what Christ has done. 
Christ dies in order to make more of himself, in order to replicate himself, as it were. Question, how does one receive this right standing before God, though? Verse 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. So if you're wondering, how do you receive this forgiveness of sins? How do you receive this perfect righteousness? How are you able to stand before God perfectly sinless and perfectly righteous? Whoever loves his life will lose it. If you love the life that you have in this world, you're not willing to part with the life of this world, living your life your way, living in sin, doing what you want. Jesus is saying, you're going to lose it eternally. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Those who will keep their life eternally with God are those who hate their life in this world. They hate the sin in their life. They hate the sins of this world. They hate the things that the world rejoices in and finds pleasures in. Those who hate their life in this world and the things of this world will find eternal life in Christ. And those who do that will be honored by the Father at the day of judgment. He says that at the very end, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Palm Sunday is the day the Messiah brought salvation not just to Jerusalem, but to the world. It is the day the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, came to deliver us from our enemies. Sin, death, and Satan. And this coming Friday, during our Good Friday service, we will take a much closer look at exactly what was needed for Christ to do in order to deliver us. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we are amazed by your mercy and grace. Thank you for sending your Son into the world to do for us what we could never do. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth, earning the righteousness we could never earn, paying the penalty we could never pay, for bringing salvation and deliverance to the world. We praise you, we love you, we worship you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we go to the Lord's Supper,